I'd like to see. Um, I'd like to uh, express my appreciation and thanks to the Chabura and to everyone involved with it. And once again, not only my appreciation, but my awe in what you've accomplished and what you continue to accomplish. This is um, very impressive and a very welcome addition to Jewish communities across the world. Um, I also want to thank you, the Chabura, um, for launching my YouTube career. Uh, the shia that I gave last week was put online, and uh, I think it has at least uh, 10 or 12 uh, views or something. So I suppose this is what celebrity and superstardom must feel like. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a heady feeling indeed. And so thank you for that. Um, so as Ben said, this week we're going to go dive deeper into Shalal and consider him as a biblical commentator um, and as a, a biblical scholar as well, and in dialogue with much of the other biblical scholarship going on in the 19th century. Um, before I start, again, one or two warnings first. As last week, um, I'm going to be speaking fairly quickly, uh, moving fairly quickly. Uh, encourage those uh, to take either mental or physical notes. And uh, I look forward to the discussion after um, after the lecture part of today. Um, I would also like to give a little bit of a warning in the sense that we are going to be discussing some things which are, um, as part of the context, we're going to be discussing ideas of um, biblical critics and, and you know, historical uh, source critics in the 19th century uh, as a background to what Shadal was doing and, and what he was trying to do in his Pirush. Um, and therefore, those who don't like this or those who uh, feel somewhat uh, this is not for them or somewhat threatening, you know, uh, more than welcome to uh, either just leave or mute me or whatever it is. Uh, and, uh, and, and we'll say no more about it. Uh, but for the time being, uh, we are going to jump in. So I'm going to uh, share my screen. Hold on. Share my screen. And, and okay. Yes. Can everyone see the screen as is? Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Um, so today we're going to do the second part of this series on Shmuel David Lutzato uh, as a biblical scholar and commentator. Um, before we do, we're going to do a very brief recap of what we said last week for those who either weren't there or don't remember. Um, so as we said about Shadal, lived from 1800 to 1865. Um, he was a, a rabbi and a Jewish scholar teaching in the Rabbinical College of Padua, as we said, a very small and not particularly successful college um, in Italy. Um, he lived a fairly tragic life. Uh, there was a lot of poverty and bereavement in his life. As we say, he, uh, he lost his young wife. He, he buried four children um, and lived his entire life, you know, very much um, not in any kind of position of wealth or power, but nonetheless managed to produce enormous amounts of scholarship, uh, you know, dozens of books, hundreds of essays, thousands of letters. Uh, one of the great contributors to the scholarship of the movement of Jewish academic scholarship uh, known as the Wissenschaft Judentums movement in Central Europe uh, in the mid to late 19th century. Um, what is important, though, we mentioned last week, of course, is that Shadal, while being very much a part of this movement, was a critic of some elements within this movement, especially those elements who are, in his eyes, too academic, too removed from the religious side of Jewish uh, scholarship. And that was something that was very characteristic of Shadal, a by nature very conservative and, and sort of religiously traditional personality. Although, as we'll see today, <clears throat> this complicates, this picture gets very complicated uh, when we see his biblical uh, scholarship. He had an antipathy, importantly, to both rational and mystical forms of Judaism, um, in the sense that he rejected uh, the major ideas of the medieval rationalistic scholars, specifically Maimonides and his school, uh, but also equally rejected, and I think even more strongly rejected, Kabbalah and forms of Jewish mysticism that had gained uh, credence and sort of canonical importance uh, in the centuries between the, the 13th and or between the 12th and the 19th century. And Shadal rejected both and charted a sort of middle way shared uh, in the medieval times from Rabbi Yudha Halevi and in his own time uh, with Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch and others. Um, 
The main features of his religious philosophy, as we said, uh, was a focus on ethical living, not intellectual achievement. Um, and of course, that is at odds very firmly with the Maimonidean view of Judaism. Um, he believed that it must be a path to practical ethical living. Well, the Torah teaches is something to be put immediately into practice. Um, and, and that's the goal of the Torah, to have people live with each other in peace and love and harmony and compassion. And that's the number one goal. Um, and finally, the Torah's message is exoteric. And that's going to be very important for today, that the that what is written in the text of the of the Chumash and of the Tanakh is most profitably read at a surface at a surface level. That what is what what we see is what we ought to be seeing and what we need to assimilate into our lives, as opposed to let's say um, the opinion of the mystics who say that actually no, what we see is simply the garb is simply something which um, is hiding the real mystical truths. Shadal did not buy into this at all, and this is important to be uh, to note. Um, a biblical commentator. So Shadal wrote many, many commentaries uh, and translations of the lifetime. Yeshaya, Yermia, Yechezkel, Mishle, Eov. These are extremely, uh, these are very important, but also tough uh, books of the Bible. They're often very lengthy. Um, linguistically, they're difficult. Um, um, also, ideologically, in terms of the ideas and the paradigms that they um, that they propound, they are also um, something which, they're works which require a lot of grappling with. And Shadal really produced um, the sorts of commentaries which, which, in a very impressive and, and, and sophisticated way, try to deal with, uh, with these uh, issues. Um, and I would say that actually his, um, uh, his dealing with or his involvement with uh, translation and commentary on the Hebrew Bible was central to his efforts overall. So Shadal was a biblical scholar, not only in terms of the uh, commentaries he actually wrote, but also in the essays that he had, uh, that he wrote, in the letters that he wrote. Biblical commentary was also on his mind um, you know, throughout whatever else he was writing on the Hebrew Bible remained front and center. And also, I would say, as someone who's translating some of Shadal's works, that even his polemical works, his Hebraic works, are really just, um, his style of writing is very biblical, or I would say pseudo-biblical, attempting to be biblical in the sense that a lot of his Hebrew sentences are simply sewing together of pre-existing words and phrases from the Tanakh, um, which is not only a stylistic thing, but also ideological. Really, the Tanakh informed how he thought, how he wrote, how he expressed himself. His his Jewish philosophy uh, very much came uh, forth in that. He wrote in 1847 a basic commentary to the Torah titled Hamishtadel. For those who are um, linguistically inclined, this is obviously the reflexive form of Shadda Shmuel David Lutato of, of his own acronyms. He, he referred to himself often in the third person as Shadal. And Hamishtadel is, of course, the reflexive, this meaning to strive. So this was a commentary which sought to strive or to attempt to grapple with the themes and the difficulties within the Chumash. Um, after his death, his students uh, produced a work called the Pirush Torah, which is a, an, a great expansion of Hamishtadel. And it's, it includes his lecture notes, it includes various parts of his essays, comments, letters that he wrote to people. All this was compiled by his son and by several of his students from the Padua Rabbinical College and put together this Pirush Torah. It's a little bit of a shame, in truth, um, that this is the case because, of course, Shadal's Pirush Torah, whenever one reads it, one is at least a little bit suspicious or has in the back of one's mind the notion that Shadal himself didn't set down to pen this uh, Pirush, to pen this uh, commentary from beginning to end. Rather, it was compiled after death. Uh, but nonetheless, it is still very readable. Um, it's a quite an extraordinary commentary for a few reasons. First, it frequently co- uh, um, quotes students and interlocutors of Shadal. Well, Shadal was very generous in terms of quoting uh, his friends, his students, um, etc. Also, it's interesting because sometimes in the in the commentary in the Purusha Torah, the second work, he will repudiate, he will uh, retroactively reject what he wrote in Hamishtadel several years earlier. So you'll have like, oh, this is what I believe about this pasuk, and and I hereby renounce what I wrote in Hamishtadel several years ago. So these are um, these are the main points of Shadal's biblical commentary uh, throughout his life. 
The challenges of biblical commentaries in the 19th century, I'm going to go very quickly over the context in which Shadal was writing, um, and not just Shadal, but actually several others. And this is actually an important point, which is that the mid-19th century, the mid to late 19th century, saw a tremendous, I would say almost unparalleled renaissance of Parshanut on the biblical text and the production of many commentaries on the Torah, uh, which, which were entered into the canon of Parshanut, the canon of biblical commentary uh, in traditional Judaism, which is interesting because for the previous two centuries, you hadn't had this, right? In the very early, I'd say the early, early modern periods, so the 15th, 16th centuries, you had uh, figures like Abarbanel, like um, um, Avadio Sforno, like Ephraim Lunchitz, who wrote the Kliakar, and those were canonical um, uh, commentaries. And then you have about two or three centuries in which there was very little written in terms of what we call today very important, you know, first-rate classical commentaries. And suddenly in the mid to late 19th century, you had an explosion. So you had Shadal, of course, uh, with his writings. You had Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch um, in Frankfurt writing his period of Torah. You had um, the Natsiv um, uh, in Volozhin writing Hamek Davar. You had... Um, Romea uh, Leibush Visser, who wrote the Malbim. You had Eliyahu Ben Amozeg's Emla Mikra. Towards the end of the century, you start having Rav David Svi Hoffman. You have also the, the oral works, which would become uh, concretized in the Sfat Emet, which is the second Rebbe of Gur. You have this enormous explosion of Parshanut, which all occurs within about a 50, 60 year period. Um, from the mid to the late 19th century, and as I mentioned at the end of last week's session, this is not a coincidence that these parshanim felt the necessity to write in an era when the biblical text was being so mercilessly, um, I would say, dissected and desacralized. In other words, uh, portrayed in a way that wasn't consonant with the Jewish tradition, and therefore within this pressure cooker of hostile ideas, you had um, this explosion of, of new and very important, very interesting uh, biblical commentary. So just to mention a few of those challenges, uh, one is, so what the early challenges, which really comes from the 18th century more than anything else, um, and earlier so were, uh, figures like Hume and Voltaire, etc., um, they wrote very scathing attacks, specifically on the Old Testament, specifically on the Hebrew Bible, because the New Testament, um, at least there is, a, you know, or one could see from, let's say, the perspective of a pure, of a non-religious rationalist, one could see, oh, well, there are many good moral lessons, good moral stories, etc., etc., whereas the Old Testament are full of these, you know, wild miracles and all sorts of laws that don't seem to have any relevance to the modern period, and therefore you had this strong attack by deists, by atheists on, on the Hebrew Bible. Um, then you had the rise of biblical criticism. So already in the early to mid-19th century, uh, you had various German figures such as Eichhorn, De Wetter, uh, and others who had started writing works undermining the traditional view of, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, these works, they questioned several elements of the traditional view of what the Tanakh is. They questioned the historical accuracy. In other words, are the events in the text did they occur as they said they occurred? Is the work historically accurate? The dating of the books are the books, are the sources that we have even from the time that the book says it's from, right? Perhaps they're from a different time. Perhaps they are uh, um, written as uh, pseudepigraphically in the sense that, you know, projected into a previous era and the unity of the biblical books as well. Most famously, the Chumash um, and the documentary hypothesis, which um, was, I would say, perfected in a way by Julius Wellhausen in the 1870s. And, this, and such works called into question whether the Chumash was indeed one text or whether it was a result of numerous sources redacted over a long, long period of time. Um, and interestingly, part of this is that some Reformed Jewish scholars, most uh, prominently Abraham Geiger, began to accept these theories, began to recast the Jewish tradition in light of some of these um, uh, findings of uh, academic um, uh, biblical critics and began to reformulate classic Jewish ideas and, and even really radically re-understand the history of the religious history of ancient Israel based on these. You have the higher source criticism. The, another point 
that you have, uh, which is very important in the mid-19th century, was the uh, lower criticism. And this means lower criticism is uh, detailed attention to the biblical text itself and trying to discover what the original, if there even is one, uh, what the original text really said. Now, what we have today in, in the Jewish world is known as the Masoretic text. The text is given over to us via the Masorah. Um, and it is the Chumash and the Tanakh that we have that's sitting on all of our shelves. However, um, there are there are a few issues with this. Firstly, is the fact that we have slight variations in the manuscripts of uh, of the Masoretic text that we have down the ages, but also an issue that many of these early biblical scholars picked up on is that there are many other early textual witnesses to the text. What this means is that there are early translations or versions of the of the biblical text which are slightly different from the Masoretic text. And who's to say that the Masoretic text has got it right and the others have got it wrong? So, for example, the Septuagint, a very important uh, translation to ancient Greek from the third century, the Vulgate, which is Jerome's translation into Latin, the Samaritan Bible, the early Targumim, for example, the Peshitta, which is a Syriac version of the Bible, all of these tell more or less the same text, except ever so slightly different, except they are, um, you know, they have variations. And scholars of that century were beginning to say, okay, let's take a look at these versions and try and suggest emendations to the Masoretic text. Maybe the Masoretic text could be improved and could be, um, um, you know, be brought back to its pristine originality through a, an analysis of these original texts. Now, we're going to see Shadal was part, to a certain degree, of this effort, which is extremely interesting. Um, and we'll see exactly how he did it, but that'll come a bit later. And finally, um, so then the methodological question comes up, how far can such linguistic scholarship be used in the Bible? But finally, for Shadal, we have a problem which is almost unique to him, which is that how can one produce a a fruitful and interesting um, and satisfactory commentary on the Bible, while at the same time resisting the temptation either to go down the mystical Hasidic path or the philosophical rationalistic path of exegesis? That's actually a very important question because, as I mentioned at the end of last week, so it's actually much easier to provide answers to difficult questions within the, within the Chumash, let's say, if you are committed, if you are open to mystical or philosophical traditions. If you close off both avenues of exegesis, then you have to be much more, I'd say, creative or, or um, many potential answers are closed off to you. And that is a question, I would, a problem I would say almost unique to Shadal. Okay, um, so a, a few principles that Shadal has in terms of um, how he crafted his uh, have a craft as biblical scholarship. The very first one and most important and obvious one is the centrality of Peshat. As I mentioned earlier, um, Shadal was absolutely adamant that the surface level, and I, I think actually the best way of translating Peshat is the basic meaning, not the simple meaning, that's a different question, but the basic meaning of the verse. Um, for, for Shadal, that was the most important, that was, that was the understanding that you had to have in order to really understand it, and therefore that was absolutely central to Shadal's um, Endeavors. I'm going to read to you a couple of uh, lines from his Vikuach al Chachmata Kabbalah, in which he bemoans and he says the following What is absolutely extraordinary in my eyes is how few seekers of the Pshat there have been among our nation after the sealing of the Talmud. Furthermore, I'm distressed to see that even those scholars who did seek the Pshat did not do so entirely consistently. Indeed, they deviated from it frequently. For instance, Rashi, the great exemplar of Pshat, often deviated from the Pshat to go in the direction of creative and, creative and speculative hermeneutics, even if his intentions were noble. And if we turn to the other great commentators, such as Ibn Ezra, Radak, and Don Isaac Barbanel, we find that in many places they deviate from the way of Pshat in other directions, namely towards philosophy. So Shadal is even though in other places he has tremendous respect, for, especially for Rashi, but also for these other uh, uh, interpreters, commentators, and he frequently 
quotes them and, and invokes them, sometimes positively, sometimes to argue on them. But nonetheless, he was always concerned and to his great consternation, all of these canonical Jewish commentators would frequently deviate from the plain meaning of the text um, in, in favor of, shall we say, generally philosophical or Kabbalistic um, uh, ways of reading the text. And he, said, he continues as follows, great damage has been caused by the flawed philosophy that spread throughout the world through the Arabs, meaning the, the, you know, the um, Muslim philosophers, who worshipped Aristotle and swore by his name and the sages of Israel in order to fit a perfect Torah with the words to philosophy, distorted and misconstrued the words of the Torah, the prophets, the Mishnah and the Talmud in order to force it to say that which it never did, said. They abandoned the Pshat and did not respect it. And then he sort of shifts his focus to criticize similarly the Kabbalists. And he says, the truth is that the Kabbalists took the ideas of the philosophers of their day, changed them slightly in order to align them with our laws and beliefs. Thus, the wisdom of Kabbalah that we've studied in our day is not from our forefathers, not from our earlier sages, but rather from the philosophers, both of whom seek to distance man from his creator. And that's the, that's the major line of this whole thing, which is that for Shadal, a, a surface pshat reading of the, of the biblical text is best precisely because it gives one the most intimate possible um, um, relationship between the person and the text, and therefore between the person and God. To have these grand um, ideational frameworks, either philosophical or Kabbalistic, is to say that actually the Torah isn't really um, worth what it is worth at its surface rather you have to do much more work within either philosophy or mysticism and then get to the true depth of it and for Shadal this was an act of distancing a person from their creator an act of um, you know making sure that someone had to learn much more about a very convoluted um, a system of ideas before being able to say that they have really gained what they need to gain from the Torah. Interestingly, Shadal applies the centrality of Pshat even when it conflicts with rabbinic traditions or rabbinic teachings or halakhic traditions. Now this is interesting. Shadal, like any good uh, um, sort of traditional Jew, accepted the rabbinic traditions in when they reinterpreted verses, and um, and you know and wanted and, and he accepted them and accepted that that was the law. However, he didn't accept that that was the pshat. He didn't accept that that was the the basic meaning of the verse. What do I mean? I mean, for instance, you know, when we say ayin tachat ayin, right? That um, you know, an eye for an eye. So famously, the rabbis, uh, you know said this is not doesn't mean literally rather it is the monetary value of an eye for an eye and and while without saying the chazal were wrong he said no this is in fact the law but that's not necessarily the pshat the, the simple the basic meaning of the verse can actually contradict what the rabbi said and it's important to understand the pshat even if um you know even before or even if one does accept the rabbinic reading um, and that's very influential and important for uh, later thinkers such as Mordechai Breyer and other later uh, biblical commentators but uh, that's taking us too far afield a second very important set of principles upon which Shadal's biblical commentary is based is uh, he the fact that he quotes widely from sources from all sorts of sources and centralizes philology and grammar okay um and as i mentioned last week uh, philology, grammar, um, you know, the technicalities of the Hebrew language was something that Shadal wrote an enormous amount about and really saw as a necessary prerequisite for any kind of competent scholarship within the Jewish realm. So um, I'm actually going to do a little, you know, bring you through a little bit of uh, Shadal's parasha So we have this verse in Exodus 2.3, which says the following, And this is referring to the mother of Moshe, who takes, who, who cannot hide the baby anymore and she makes a tevat of gome she makes a a little basket of gome and she um sort of uh, she uh, puts on the outside chemar vazafit now chemar and zafit are words that one that does come up later in the way we understand what it is but what does this word gome actually mean so here is i'm going to present you one piece of shadow which i think is very 
uh, it's a bit of an extreme example, but he's very representative of the kind of openness that his um, that his commentary um, um, contained, uh, which goes as follows. So I'm uh, I'm going to put the whole thing. I'm going to gu- guide you through it because it is a little bit complicated, especially as I couldn't all format it on one line. He goes, Gomer, who, and I've put an ellipsis here. It should say papyrus. I just couldn't figure out the formatting, but it has in Latin letters, in, in English uh, letters, who papyrus. It is, Gomer is papyrus, hagodel itzel hayor, that, um, that, that grows next to the river. Vnikrakim nilshon hagmeinina. Hagmeinina is a reference to the verse uh, in Genesis where Eliezer, the, or rather the, the servant of Avram, the Ebed Avraham, asks of Rivka, hagmeinina mayim mikadech. Give me to drink a little bit of water from your from your jug. Liot because that grew next to the water. In other words, this this papyrus, these kinds of reeds that grow next to the Nile uh, or, or next to the water in question. and you need it uh, in order to drink. So it's these reeds function also as a kind of straw or a way in which one through which one can drink. Hence the hagbi'ini now give me to drink, meaning feed me through a straw through one of these reeds um, a drink of water. And so too, um, this is what Lucanus, who was a, an important Roman poet um, of the first century, caru bibula papyrus, which means soaked papyrus, soaked paper, uh, or papyrus, these reeds. Vahayu, uh, sorry, and I'm skipping to the next language, the, the, the English, sorry, the Hebrew. Vahayu osimni menu begadim, they make from it clothes, menalim, shoes, salim, baskets, vegam sfinot, and also ships. They'd actually make entire ships from this papyrus. Vizeu lashon lukanus, this is what Lucanus said. Conceritur bibula memphitis simba papyro, uh, which I had to look up, I have to be honest, uh, which means that the um, that uh, I have it here. That the um, that the ships of Memphis were built from soaking papyrus, from Bibulo papyrus. The ships of Memphis, according to Lucanus, and then he puts here in the brackets Rose Vagiz, which is actually um, only for the sort of the the, um, the initiates, and that is Rosenmuller and Justinius, who are senior German uh, um, biblical scholars at the time. And here you have in one little paragraph, a few extraordinary qualities of Shadal's biblical scholarship. Firstly, he is quoting from Lucanus, uh, uh, you know, um, Lucan in English, a, uh, a Roman poet, and, and you know, and he's, he's emphasizing that Roman poet is speaking about ancient Egypt. So he's quoting an ancient, ancient source and showing sensitivity to the fact that this is an ancient Egyptian context, and therefore Gomer must be understood as these kinds of reeds growing next to Nile. And he's quoting the full uh, verse in Latin, which he obviously must have been familiar with. And he's quoting Rosenmuller and Jesenius, which were senior uh, German scholars at the time. All of this within the space of about three or four lines, demonstrating Shadal's, the length to which Shadal was willing to go in which to um, correctly, in his eyes, um, comment on a verse by drawing together ancient poetry, by bringing together, um, you know, uh, bring together um, parts of Latin, but it's sort of a, a light being shed on ancient Egyptian history and by quoting his contemporary uh, non-Jewish Bible scholars. And this brings me to a golden rule that I'm, that I'm sort of made up myself, but an important rule when it comes to Shadal's attitude towards biblical scholarship, which goes as follows. He is very much uh, uh, intent on welcoming, or he's very open to scientific common sense scholarship. When I say scientific, I mean something like philological uh, 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 grammar, syntax, all of that, all, all of the, uh, I would say, more scientific, um, uh, um, more scientific elements of language scholarship, that is, for Shadal, legitimate to incorporate, to assimilate into uh, Pshat. However, speculations, philosophical speculations about what may or may not uh, be correct or may, not, may or may not be, um, you know, 
what can or can't be true Pshat uh, of the Pasuk, which we'll get to in a minute when he discusses Spinoza and, and, uh, and, uh, and Ibn Ezra. So that those are not. He's very open to scientific scholarship, very much close to the kind of philosophical speculation. That's also important to note that not a small amount of 19th century German scholarship uh, on the Hebrew Bible was informed by elements of, of the uh, of the philosophy that was common, that was trendy within the German academia at the time, specifically uh, certain historicist ideas uh, from Herder, from Hegel, um, certain theories of the development of religion from August Comte as well. There are certain philosophical, and for Chardin, that was illegitimate. You couldn't bring your own fancy theories about religion, your own fancy theories about how history goes into the Bible, but you could bring in uh, grammar and, and, uh, and syntax and ancient philology and things like that. A third principle that I want to bring up is Shadal's literary sensibility. Now, I mentioned last week, Shadal is a poet, wrote two volumes of poetry. Um, he's also, his Hebrew is very lyrical, and he had this quite superb uh, sensitivity towards, um, or one might say, a literary sensibility towards the text and understanding the text and bringing up points that others hadn't raised, precisely because Shadal had that kind of extraordinary ear um, for these finer details of the text. So, for example, there's uh, the famous verse in Exodus 15, which is the beginning of Shirat Hayam, which says, Sus v'rochvo rama bayam which means the horse and his rider was tossed up into the sea. Okay, what is the problem? The problem, a possible issue could be, why is it in the singular? Surely it should be susim uh, that horses and their riders were tossed about in the sea. Why a horse and his rider? Shadal comes in, and this I put in English, uh, goes as follows. In the poetic parable, singular is better than plural, for the feeling is much stronger because the reader's thoughts fit among many topics. Consi- flit, sorry, flit among many topics. Consider, for example, bring justice to the orphan, plead the widow's cause in, in Isaiah. Were it, were it said to bring justice to the orphans and to plead the cause of the widows, in the plural, the parable would lose a great deal of its power as the reader's thoughts would flit among many orphans and widows. Now all of them are gathered into one orphan and one widow. Now you might agree with Shadal, you might not, but the point is that he took, took a look at this person and said, okay, why is it in the singular? And he thought that within poetic, within um, you know, a, a deeply aesthetic kind of verse in which it isn't so much the precise historical detail as much as the invoking of emotion that's important. He said, so if you portray it as one, plead the justice of the orphan, of the widow, the horse and the rider, he says that focuses the reader's mind on one particular example of that entity and therefore makes it much more vivid, much more imaginable. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. The point is that the exquisite aesthetic sensibility, which very much um, is visible throughout Shadal's commentary um, in the many books in which he was a Roman commentator. Okay, a fourth principle, uh, and and perhaps uh, one that is very much of a piece with other parts of his philosophy, is the Torah's focus not as uh, a factual work, not as a history book, and not as some kind of guide to complex theology, as the rationalist thought, but rather instructional, rather to live the long, long life. And one of the best examples is the very first verse of the Bible, which says, So you have this first chapter in uh, Genesis chapter one, in which you have a very detailed um, um, description of the creation of the world. So the question would naturally come up is, what do we need this for? What is the what is the Bible trying to teach us? Because, uh, you know, a medieval or pre-modern uh, commentator would say, oh, the Bible is giving us a literal blow-by-blow account of how God created the world. This is a historical work. It is to teach us scientific facts about how the world, how the universe came into being. Shadal rejects this. He doesn't necessarily reject that's how it went, but he rejects that that is the main point of the book because he doesn't see it as a primarily historical work. And, and he has the following comment. The enlightened ones will understand 
that the intent of the Torah is not to inform the natural about the natural sciences, and the Torah was not given except to straighten the ways of man to righteousness and justice, and to establish their, in their hearts the belief in his unity and providence, since the Torah was not only given to the sages, but rather to the whole people. This is very important, as I said before, the Torah as an exoteric text, a text that can be read on the surface by ordinary people with great profit and, and can be assimilated into people's lives. And then he says the following, which I, I very much admire. And behold, God wanted to inform people of the unity of the universe and the unity of mankind. Since error in both of these matters caused great evils in ancient times, from the lack of awareness of the unity of the universe, it came that people would believe in the existence of specific gods with defects and inferior character traits, and they will do evil acts in order to please these gods. And from the lack of awareness of the unity of mankind, it came out that people of one nation would hate and revile the people of another nation, and they would act towards them with a force of arms and not with justice and righteousness. And these two fundamental principles, the unity of the universe and the unity of mankind, are the main point of the stories of the creation saga. I have to say, I love this little piece of Shadar, because I think it is extremely relevant and contemporary to Jewish educators today. If someone were to come up to you and say, what is the point of Genesis chapter one? It's quite difficult today to maintain that the point of the story is to tell us a blow by blow historical scientific account of how the universe came to being. Shadal says, no, but that's not what it's trying to do. It's trying to teach us two principles. Principle number one is the, the unity of the universe, and therefore one God, one organizing principle behind the whole thing. And the second is the unity of humankind, that we're all descended from one person, therefore we're all part of one family, and therefore it makes little sense to hate or revile other people. After all, we are all brothers and sisters. We are all part of one um, one species. And again, this is, I think, an extraordinary answer, a very modern, very useful answer. The point of Genesis chapter one is to teach the unity of the universe and the unity of mankind. And this very much flows from Shadal's fervent belief that the Torah has a, an instructional, practical, ethical priority. That is the main guiding principle behind all the texts of the Torah. And that is something that can be uh, read profitably across the whole Torah and most especially in Genesis chapter one. Okay, now we're going to move on to how much time do I have? Uh, um, okay, I have a little bit of time. Um, we're going to look at two of the most, I would say, um, controversial elements of modern biblical scholarship and how Shadal played out within this particular world, uh, that is textual emendations and dating of texts, okay? So the first one is the uh, uh, the whole notion of textual emendations. As I said before, uh, incidentally, again, this came up very much in the 19th century with a renewed wave of scholarship into all sorts of prior texts, such or all sorts of ancient witnesses to the text, such as the Septuagint and the, the old um, Targumim and the, uh, the Vulgates, etc. Um, all of the, and so so scholars were creating uh, or rather rereading the, the Masoretic biblical text and, and um, tweaking the verses or saying, mm, I don't think this is the correct word. I think this is a little bit different. This should be here. This should be there. Um, and of course, once again, the more you believe that the Torah or the, the Tanakh, more accurately, is not a divinely inspired work, the more you believe it's a, it's, a, it's a profoundly human work, the more likely you are to say, okay, so the Masoretic text we have in front of us must have overgone, must have uh, uh, um, undergone many corruptions, many... Um, uh, um, over the centuries must become corrupt, must have become, um, must have moved away from its pristine originality, and we're going to try and restore it. So Shadal has, he was one of the very first traditionalist scholars to somewhat, to somewhat participate in this whole endeavor of textual emendation. So as I said before, uh, Shadal was very, very well versed in linguistics and grammar, probably the, the greatest rabbinic example of the 19th century of this. Um, as uh, we also mentioned last week the Nukudot and Tamim, that is the, the violation marks and the cancellation marks. He saw this as a late invention, which Shadal was happy to play around with. He was happy to, to um, read verses against 
um, against the grain of the Nekudot and the Ta'amim, um, not part of the original Masorah going back all the way over to Moses Sinai. And Shadal, very interestingly, viewed textual corruption as a possibility, but he, he believed, and here is where he diverged from Geiger and, and other reformist scholars, he believed it was never done deliberately. In other words, he said it is possible that in the Tanakh we have nowadays, over the centuries, there were some corruption or some um, mistakes made through copying manuscripts one to another, generation after generation of scribes, but never deliberately. It was never part of an, an effort to try and fool people to try and create some kind of different uh, parts of the religion. And therefore, he did suggest certain small corrections to Masoretic text. So um, I will uh, read a brief paragraph here where he says, the books of the Holy Writ were kept constantly in the midst of Israel as a precious beloved treasure, and no one ever set a hand against them to falsify them, to add to them or to take away from them. Despite this, it would have been impossible after so many transmissions and so much copying not to have alternate versions, one of which is correct, emerging from the hands of the author, and the other and the other only the mistake of the copyist scribe this was more common in previous generations when the books were not bound together in individual volumes however there are only very few errors alternative versions and again this speaks to Shadal's duality playing out within Shadal on the one hand the punctilious scholar who looks at the text and says it does seem that there were some minor scribal errors but also the traditionalist who said no it was likely there were only very few errors they came you know only in the ancient times and never on purpose. And there are only a few of them in Tanakh at all anyway. And therefore, um, you know, again, it was a partial recognition of the scholarship, but also a very strong uh, traditionalist uh, loyalty um, in Shadal. And Shadal did, in fact, make various emendations to the later books and very rarely within the Chumash himself, because, of course, the Chumash becomes much more uh, dicey and, and problematic due to the, um, the doctrine mainly uh, um, expounded by the Ramba, by Maimonides, of the textual inerrancy, right? Maimonides said specifically in, I believe it's the eighth of the 13 principles of faith, that not only do we have to believe the Torah is from Moses, we have to believe the Torah that we have now is exactly as it was then. No, no word, no letter changed, nothing missing, nothing added. Everything's exactly, exactly as it was in the time of Moshe when it was given you know, thousands of years ago. And so Shaddai was obviously far more comfortable, we'll get to this in the next slide, suggesting emendations to the later books, and very occasionally, also in the Chumash itself, but usually without changing any of the letters, really just moving around the vowels. Um, um, and also he, he did it, uh, I wouldn't say sparingly, but only when he was forced to by the Pshat. I'm going to give you the most famous example of Shadal's textual emendations. Right? I need everyone here to concentrate for a moment so I'm going to explain why and how this came to be. And it's, it's an emendation which, as far as we know, Shadal made up himself um, and was extremely... Uh, widely accepted even by non-Jewish scholars after Shadal's death and is still credited as this kind of uh, innovation of Shadal in the following passage. We're all very familiar with this verse, right from Ezekiel. Right? The... Um, that, that uh, this is towards the end of Ezekiel's famous vision of the chariot. And he says that the spirit lifted me and I heard behind me a loud noise saying, Baruch, blessed is the Lord from his place. Now, the, now this is obviously very familiar to us because it is entered into the liturgy of our everyday uh, uh, prayers, you know, in Kedusha, in, in Uvalotia, and various other prayers. Um, and therefore, this is something that we have um, you know, very much adopted this passage because we are, so to speak, quoting the angels, quoting the chayot, quoting those um, sort of heavenly beings beings around the chariot saying Baruch the problem is that if you look at this verse here this Hebrew verse it gets a little bit it's a little bit difficult to explain for the following reason I, 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 the spirit left me and I heard behind myself a large uh, loud noise and then it doesn't say 
who said it or, or why they said it or when they said it or, or even that people said it. If you look in the translation, I have provided in the in the uh, brackets here the word saying and a colon and then um, speech marks. But blessed is the word from his place. Blessed is the glory of God from his place. However, in the original Hebrew, you don't have it. It just says a loud noise. Baruch Right? There is no. It's unusual. You have it. You should have words there. Something like v'chayot amru baruch kavod Right? That that would make it much smoother. Right now, it reads as though there's this giant wedge between gadol and baruch, which which needs to be sort of filled in by the translator by the brackets. And this seems to be difficult to understand. So Shadal suggested the following. Again, it's an emendation of the text, but it is an attempt to make the text much smoother and much more comprehensible. He says the following. The great roaring sound, the, the um, Kol Rash Gadol, it says, the, the great roaring sound does not sit well as a description of the sound of a speaking voice. Rather, it refers to the sound of the wings of the chayot as they move. So he said, the Kol Rash Gadol, a Rash, is very rarely speech. Rash just means noise, like white noise. It doesn't mean directed speech general, generally. Moreover, in the entire story of the chariot, you do not find the speech imputed to chayot at all. He says, those in Ezekiel's entire vision, you don't have any of the angelic figures speaking. It's very interesting that you know we say in our prayers that you know we're as as though invoking the speech of the of the of the uh, angels, but it seems that these angelic creatures don't speak. Therefore, he suggested the verse must be read as follows: Then a spirit carried me away, and behind me I heard a great roaring sound, as the glory of God ascended from its place. And in Hebrew, it is instead of Baruch Kavod it is Barum with a mem. Kavod Hashem Imkoma, right? In other words, it is instead of, and I heard behind me a loud noise, Barum Kavod Hashem Imkoma, when the glory of God rose from its place, then I heard the loud noise. That actually makes a lot of sense. That makes the whole verse very smooth. From beginning to end, it just reads, and I, I, the wind lifted me up, and I heard a loud noise when God's glory ascended. That's a very smooth reading the passage. And all it needs is the changing of one letter, a kaf to the, to the final kaf of Baruch to the final mem. Now, what's interesting, and Shadal didn't know this, is that in Paleo-Hebrew text, the kaf, the final kaf and the final mem are very similar. In fact, they're almost indistinguishable. And therefore, uh, later scholars who did have access to, to this um, Paleo-Hebrew text have, uh, have suggested that this is actually a very plausible um, rereading of the pasuk because the whole thing is much smoother, as I said, and it only requires the tiniest change of one letter. Um, and it's very plausible to think that over the, the hundreds of generations of scribes and copyists, there was a small error crept in, um, and therefore, and, and therefore, you know, we should have this emendation. Now, of course, this emendation is quite daring because it completely rereads, completely reimagines um, uh, this verse, and therefore. Uh, sort of whips out the rug from a part of the the Jewish um, liturgical um, liturgical text in which this plays a central role. So, you know, whether this should be adopted into our prayers, you know, I don't think Shadal would have said that. But Shadal is thinking from a scholarly perspective, how can I do the least violence to this verse while also make sure, making sure it makes the most possible sense and and you know is is most readily uh, comprehensible to the average person. And this is what he came up with. So this is an example, probably the most famous example of Shadal's emendation to a text. Again, it's a text in Yecheskel, in the Prophets, um, where, he, where he did this quite frequently. But in the text of Chumash, he very, very rarely uh, resorted to text emendations. The final thing that I want to touch on uh, before finishing um, is Shadal's dating of various biblical books. Now, um, Shadal had always the traditionalist approach in which he said the entirety of the Tanakh is A, divinely inspired, and B, of sound integrity. Shadal had no time whatsoever for 
or, or very, very little time, I should say, um, for the findings of higher criticism. In other words, this notion that various biblical books are made of different sources, different fragments sewn together by a much later editor, much later redactor. Shadal rejected this out of hand. Uh, he believed that all divinely inspired and also that all these books came more or less as complete units as they were and therefore um, you know, have a certain basic soundness, basic integrity. Uh, he, he rejected to a large degree higher criticism. Now, Obviously, as we know, the Tanakh is divided into three parts, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, um, and Shadal had a different approach to each one. So when it came to the Torah, when it came to the five books of Moses, the Chumash, Shadal was absolutely traditional. Moses wrote this regardless of any scholarship. And I have to say, um, as sort of, you know, intellectual historian, um, there seems to be very little scholarly basis for this, uh, for this position of Shadal. In other words, Shadal was quite happy, to, as we're going to see in a moment, to, um, to sort of apply at least some of the findings of biblical scholarship to the later books, whereas when it came to the Torah, Shadal defended its absolute perfection and mosaic authorship um, really from a religious perspective. It didn't come from his scholarly side, rather from his instinctive uh, religious traditional side, and it was very... Um, he was absolutely adamant that this was the case. Um, whereas, you know, from a, a strictly intellectual perspective, it's not so easy at all to see why the Chumash should be spared the kind of scholarship that is applied to the later texts of the Hebrew Bible. Um, so, for example, famously, um, I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, do this extremely briefly, um, that, okay, I have to, a little bit of background. There are various psukim in the Torah, this is quite uh, famous, quite well known, that um, it appears, seems at least, to have been written possibly from a later date. So one of the most famous examples is Deuteronomy 1.1, uh, the first, the first uh, verse of the book of Dvarim, which says that this book was written Be'ever Hayarden. Now, what's the problem with saying that the book was written by Moshe Be'ever Hayarden is if you're, if you're calling that area, the Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan, it implies that you are sitting in Eretz Yisrael, right? It implies that the author of the book is sitting in the correct side of the Arden, i.e. in Eretz Israel, and the book is being written on the other side of the Jordan. Um, and, and famously, um, Ibn Ezra writes on this, that these and other psukim are part of the Sod Hashneim Asar, the secret of the Twelve, uh, Maskil Yavin, and, and that's it, and, and it says no more. So this, uh, he, uh, Ibn Ezra leaves us with this kind of tantalizing hint um, as to what this might be, but never uh, extrapolates. And Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, famously um, read this verse and read this commentary of Ibn Ezra as Ibn Ezra endorsing the idea that certain psukim were added in by later uh, later authorities, later authors, right? And this is one of the very um, foundation stones of biblical scholarship, and Spinoza was a foundational biblical uh, um, biblical critic in the sense that i thinking that, no, the five books of Moses weren't written by Moses, and we can tell that some verses were added in later because of the internal evidence of each verse. And essentially, Shadal has a very long piece in the first uh, pasuk of the Sefer Dvarim, completely rejecting this and saying no and providing a whole other explanation of what Ibn Ezra meant and basically rejecting this reading of the Ibn Ezra because Shadal was not only um, traditionalist when it came to reading the Bible, he was also very traditionalist when it came to the biblical, the great biblical commentators. He, he couldn't fathom the idea that Ibn Ezra was part of this sort of shadowy cabal of, of uh, commentators who believed that there were verses um, later on tacked into or, or inserted into the Chumash. He believed that this was nonsense. Um, and in fact, he was very upset at some of his colleagues, uh, colleagues in the Wissenschaft Unity Movement, uh, such as Jost and Geiger, um, who suggested later datings from the Chumash based on uh, based on the works of Spinoza and, and later critics as well. So he was when it came to the Torah, he was absolutely traditional. When it came to the prophets, to the Nevi'im, he was also traditional with the dating, but yet felt quite free to add his own interpolations. As we saw, added in the um, the, the uh, interpolation vis-a-vis Yechezkel, chapter 3, verse 12, as we saw in the previous slide. And he had his great arguments with two 
of the of the great Eastern Maskilim uh, called Nachman Krochmal and Shlomo Yudah Rappaport, um, Krochmal and Shir, uh, regarding the second half of, of the book of Yeshayahu. This is also a fairly famous claim, but the book of Yeshayahu at least appears on the face of it to have two halves to it. The first is chapters 1 to 39 that was clearly written by a by Yeshayahu ben Amot, an 8th century prophet who's living in Jerusalem before the Churban, of the year 586, before the destruction of the first Beit Mikdash, and telling his society, listen, you have to shape up, and you have to do what God wants you to do, otherwise there will be, in the future, a great tragedy, a great Chorban. The second, uh, the, the, the last 26 uh, uh, chapters, the, uh, chapters 40 to 66, beginning with the phrase, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, those appear to be written much later. They appear to be written on a retrospective uh, uh, perspective, from the perspective of a prophet who's living in exile, a prophet who, after Jerusalem is already destroyed, and he's providing nachamu nachamu, he's providing comfort for the Jews who have been exiled, and he mentions Koresh, the the, the um, Cyrus, the, the Persian emperor at the time, and basically there is a, a seemingly quite a bit of evidence that chapters forty to sixty six were written by a later prophet. And this is a question that has been uh, debated among Jewish uh, scholars you know, quite uh, vociferously from that time, from Shadal's time until this, and including him, Shadal defended, defended the unity of the book of Isaiah. He insisted the whole of Yeshayahu from chapter one through chapter 66 is actually the work of one author, unlike the, the biblical scholars who claim there are at least two, maybe three or four um, 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 authors to, uh, to the book of Isaiah. And the reason he did this, and he, he provides a very um, strong sort of ideological reason for defending this is because why would someone claim that chapters 40 to 66 are, um, are of a later prophet? Because it is based on this idea that prophecy cannot accurately predict the future. Although when a prophet speaks, it, it's impossible for a prophet in the 8th century to speak fully and accurately as though he's in the 6th century, as though you know, he's already seen the Khurban, as the Korah has already written to the throne, he's already in Persia, and he knows all the details of this later time. Whereas Shadal says, no, Shadal holds fast to this idea that a prophet really is what a prophet claims to be, i.e. he can see into the future. He is given this divine uh, uh, foresight, as it were, and able to speak as though he is in a much later time. And therefore, he argued with Krochman and Rappaport, who themselves are very conservative and, and very, um, you know, not among the biblical scholars who are trying to undermine the integrity of most biblical texts. But he was very insistent, uh, Shadal, against them that, no, Isaiah has to be kept as a unity precisely because we must defend this notion that prophets really were as the prophets claimed to be, i.e. able to say what will happen in the future, whereas Krochman and Rappaport said, yes, prophets can do that. However, the weight of the evidence is on the side that there was another prophet who, who wrote in the book of Yeshua who perhaps called Yeshaya and um and would uh, and was able to uh, to write in that vein and his works were added in. So um um in also as we saw before he when it came to the prophets the Nevi'im, Shadal added in more uh, um uh, various of his own interpolations. Finally when it comes to the Ketuvim he felt very free. Uh, I would say really quite free to follow scholarly intuitions, both in terms of dating and in terms of adding in his own uh, emendations and interpolations. Uh, so, for example, he believed that some of the Psalms, some of the Tehillim were later dating. You know, there are some very famous examples. Uh, most famous is Psalm 137, you know, Al Naharot Bavel Sham Yasham Lugam Bachinu. It seems very difficult to believe that, you know, King David five centuries earlier was predicting or was he was talking in the past tense about sitting in the rivers of Babylon and, and crying and mourning the Beit Mikdash, right? This does seem to be a Psalm of a later date and Shadal uh, accepted this. Also, interestingly, there's one biblical book that Shadal really didn't like very much, and it was the book of Kohelet. And anyone who's been following uh, these classes until now should see why he really despised the book of Kohelet, um, because Kohelet 
Shadal was all about ethical living, you know, uh, uh, traits such as emet and chemla and rachamim and, and tzedek, whatever. And all of these were grievously undermined by the author of Kohelet, who basically, in various parts of his uh, of his book, said things like, you know, you know, nothing really matters. All one needs to do is eat and drink and, and you know, have fun today because tomorrow we're all going to die, etc. And that, you know, that's a very strong theme within the book of Kohelet. Um, and Shadal was, was, you know, was very upset about this um, and, you know, believed that, that Kohelet could not have possibly be written by, uh, by Shlomo HaMelech. Rather, it must be later, uh, both on linguistic grounds, and this is, you know, something that modern scholarship is very much agreed upon, that, that Kohelet must have been much later because of the language it used, but also on doctrinal grounds, that it must have been a much later thinker of some kind, who propounded these sorts of doctrines, and therefore Shadal felt free to reject the um, traditional dating of this book, both on linguistic uh, uh, ground and doctrinal grounds. And this is, um, in summary, in sort of on one uh, on one foot, Shadal's understanding and uh, and his attitude towards the different parts of the Tanakh and what he felt he was licensed to do in terms of we're in within the framework of the Torah, of the Nevi'im, of the um, and this is this comes this brings us to the end, I think. Of Shadal's um, uh, of our presentation of Shadal as a biblical scholar, I will now stop the share and open up for questions. Thank you so much. That was a really interesting, insightful shiur. I'm sure you know. I personally gained a lot from seeing a lot of the kind of earlier academic thought writings that appear in Shadal. You know, some of those arguments are, are still discussed till today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if anybody has any questions, please feel free to unmute. Um, um, one one question. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, thank you so much. Fascinating. Um, regarding the 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 suggestion about uh, Baruch Kevod Hashem mm-hmm. right? The Baruch. <clears throat> Considering he didn't know um, the the evidence or, or that, that you mentioned of the um, original uh, script, um, what was his methodology to come up with that change? Is it just Based on what he think thought the Peshat could be, I'm, I'm trying to understand. Um, he's sort of quite lucky with that finding that you mentioned, but other, if not for that, I don't understand where he's coming from. So he's coming from as I as I introduced it, which is that the, the verse as it stands has two parts to it, and they don't neatly. Uh, um, there's no neat sort of um, bridging conjunction between them, right? You one would expect something like v'amru v'chayot amru or something like that. In other words, it could or, or perhaps leimor. That word could have done. It seems odd that you have this this sort of two completely different parts. Now, what's interesting is that some translators of this verse. I looked this up before. Of some English translators to this verse, what they do is they put a full stop after kol rash gadol, end of quotation marks, and baruch kavod Hashem komo is just. You know, part of the next thing is just this kind of declaration by the prophet. It's no longer what the Chayot said, right? It's just, and that also helps dealing with it. But what Shadal was trying to do, I think, was to have the smoothest possible reading of the Pasuk with the minimal amount of change. Because the moment you start switching entire words out, let's say, the moment you start maybe deleting a few words, that already gets to, I would say, quite um, theologically treacherous positions right you say okay well you know if we can delete half a pasuk from Yechezkel who, who knows what else we can start deleting right what Shaddai I think wants to do was okay let's make this pasuk smooth let's make it make sense and let's change a one tiny letter and it so happens that later scholarship showed that actually changing that letter is very plausible because you have the the small cuff in the, the, the cuff in the bed so um so I think that's probably the likeliest 
uh, answer I can give. And again, I would say that Shadal, he, he written this in his own letters, that he really only resorted to emendations of verses when he felt he didn't have another choice. If he could find a way of sewing it together or find a, a, a you know, Pshat level, a good way of, of understanding the verse, or even just declaring he didn't know, these were all options to him. Emendations were things he had when he, he really felt that there was something that, that ought to have been changed. Um, um, yeah, he, I would say he was as conservative as one could possibly be while still being open to making textual emendations, which is actually, again, this is why I find Shadal so fascinating. He's this, this mixture of the conservative and the open to, to some kind of modern scholarship. And then, you know, the, the, the sense that modern scholars were, were onto something. They weren't just talking nonsense. They were onto something, but also hanging on to uh, the basics and hanging on to, to the ideological foundations, which he thought were most important. Was there anyone else who took that middle path um... I mean, you mentioned Rabbi Uday Levi, but I'm talking about, you know, more, more, more modern to his time where there was sort of open, you know, quite critical, but at the same time, traditionist. Um, very few. The, the answer is very few. The only one I can sort of think of, because, again, everyone in the Orthodox camp was unwilling to do any kind of emendation, more or less. And, and those in the Reform camp were willing to take apart entire text. One I can think of who was quite close is actually the historian Heinrich Gretz. Okay, the historian Heinrich Gretz was quite like Shadal in terms of his instinctive small-c conservatism, instinctive traditionalism, but open to making emendations. In fact, there's a funny story, very, brief, very briefly, of, of um, so, so Gretz used to teach in the same school as Zacharias Frankel, who was the great rabbinic leader of, the, of a form of Judaism that later morphed into conservative Judaism, but you know, a very considerable scholar, wrote this groundbreaking book on the Mishnah. Um, and what happened was, apparently, Gretz would sometimes get called up to say the Haftorah, right? And he would say, he'd read the Haftorah, but he would add in those emendations that he thought were, ought to be added in. And then Frankel would get up after him and repeat the whole Haftorah in front of everyone because he thought that, you know, he just had he'd read it wrong. So he had this, you know, one teacher getting up and then the Rosh Hashiva standing up and just doing it all over again. Uh, I, I think that's a fantastic story. Anyone else? Thank you. I, I, if I could just ask a question. I was just wondering about why was there any any basis beyond the traditionalist view that Shadal was less willing to accept kind of the same scholarly approach to Torah in contrast to let's say Kutuvim or um, I guess if 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 the answer is yeah he just wasn't happy to because it was traditionalist what what was his view on the difference in level difference in um, sacred status between the Torah the Nevi'im and the Kutuvim. So I'd say the following. Shadal, in one place, in fact, is an introduction to Yeshayahu, I believe, has quite a lengthy, it's worth a read, because it's quite a lengthy outline of his methodology, okay, as an introduction to Yeshayahu. And, and in, I believe it's in there where he does try and prove, he gives reasons why he believes that the Torah is actually, what it says it is, actually authored by Moshe Rabbeinu, one unified text, and, and gives a certain reasons. I, I don't have them all sort of on the tip of my tongue. I do know that he... That I'll put it this way, much of the criticisms of the Torah, of the Chumash, were those higher scholarship forms of criticism, which Shadal felt were very speculative in nature, right? For instance, the most famous of which, right, is, is Velhausen's uh, idea that, that the, the, the P-text, well, those who know what I'm talking about, you know, will enjoy this, those who don't, you know, feel free to tune out for a moment, but basically... Um, the German uh, critics, especially Wellhausen, had an idea of how religion ought to develop, okay? 
and took the biblical text and put them in order, dated them in a certain order of how they believed religion ought to develop from a kind of primitive uh, way of viewing God as like this corporeal, um, you know, almost king-like body, um, all the way to the much more abstract and um, uh, ethical monotheistic way of, of doing religion, right? And, and, and basically ch- charting, basically dated what they thought the source of the Chumash was on their theory of how they think a religion ought to develop from the primitive to the rational, okay? And, and Shadaj wasn't willing to play those games. Like, he wasn't willing to say, okay, based on theories we have now of the development of religions, we are going to, um, you know, Ewald and Hupfeld and, and especially Wellhausen, they, a lot of their scriptural work came on the basis of um, on the basis of these kind of theories of religion. And in fact, famously, Solomon Schechter, um, you know, one of the, the great scholars of the late 19th, early 20th century, he called uh, higher criticism the higher anti-Semitism. It's like a very famous way of, of, uh, of what he called it, because he felt that what Velhas and others were doing was trying to show a decline and degeneration in the ancient Israelite religion, which then Christianity came and saved, right? The, 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 the Christian um, you know, revolu- revolution was bringing Israel back to its... Uh, you know, peak of ethical monotheism and undoing the centuries of decline into formalism and, and, and ritualism and temple and whatever. Th- that were, those were the paradigms, the archetypes they're working with. Whereas, of course, for Shadal, all this was, wasn't was worth taking into account because for him, these are speculative theories. And like he didn't like the speculations of the Rambam, and like he didn't like the speculations of the Zohar, he doesn't like the theoretical speculations of uh, a German scholarship. He likes their grammar. He likes their uh, uh, philology. He likes their history doesn't like their speculations. Thank you so much. Very informative, enjoyable class. Um, oh, we hope to welcome you back in the future, certainly for more that you can share with us. I look forward um, to it. Thank you. Thank you. And everyone keep an eye out on the WhatsApp groups for future Hubbara events. Have a good evening, everyone. All the best.